0: Welcome to Veteran
1: on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe,
0: or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape,
1: this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. Have you heard about the new travel website for the military community? Check out AmericanForcesTravel.com to save money on flights, cars, and hotels, and Support your branch of the military at the same time. That's AmericanForcesTravel.com. All right, welcome back to the Sage and Snooze Show. My name is Joe Crane, call sign Snooze. I'm here with Brigadier General Tom Droddy, and we're call signing him, Sage. So, Sage, a while back you had the opportunity to go back and speak at your high school that you graduated from. What was that like?
0: Joe, it was just a, an amazing experience. The uh, Community Foundation of Kankakee River Valley, this is my hometown of Kankakee, Illinois. Uh, it sounds like a disease, but it's the name of an <laughs> Indian River, about uh, 60 miles south of Chicago. And that is where I was born and raised and uh, left uh, there in uh, 1958 at age 18 to head off to the Naval Academy to become a Marine. But uh, the foundation has established... Uh, this award called the Hometown Hero, and the the first honoree was going to be me, and of course I felt you know deeply humbled by by that selection. And so, um, since I was back there, I contacted my my high school uh, principal and asked if it would be possible to um, talk to the students to share a few thoughts with them. And uh, he had known me from before; I had received an award from from the high school a, a few years ago. But uh, when he said yes, I then asked, uh, what, what do the students need? What, what do you like me to, to talk to them about? And without hesitation, he said, uh, we've got some great young men and women, but there's a tendency for youngsters these days to give up too easily. When things get tough, when they run into obstacles, they just say, uh, it's too difficult, You know, I'll just, uh, I'll just quit and move on to something else. And I said, well, that that'll be easy because uh, what I'll do is uh, come in and talk about uh, not the successes that I had, but the failures and, and what I learned from them. Yeah, and maybe it'll be something of value for the youngsters. So he said, "Okay, gee, that would be great." So I came in and there's uh, you know about five hundred students uh, there in the in the gym, and uh, uh, nice introduction from the principal. And and I started off by saying, "I I know what's going through your mind. You know, you're sitting there thinking." God, what have I done to deserve this? You know, to sit here and listen to some old Greg come in and talk about and yammer on and on about, you know, the things that he did and so forth, and and uh, you know how long, you know, why this punishment? And, and so I said, uh, okay, uh, so I can I can just tell you that's not going to happen. What is going to happen is I'm not going to tell you about my successes. I'm going to tell you about some failures. And now you're saying, oh, this is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> All the things that this old guy did wrong, this is going to oh. So, so with that, I, I just talked about the three failures of, of my life and and uh, the fact that failure is, uh, is so much a part of life. And, and the, the trick is, or the challenge is what we do with it. Uh, Winston Churchill once said that success is going from failure failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And I said, you know, think about the, you know, in in athletics in baseball, uh, a success is a guy at bat who fails seven out of 10 times. You know, a 300 hitter is a a pretty solid uh, candidate for the Hall of Fame these days. So so, uh, failure is just a part of life, but only if you continue to try. And so my first failure was uh, at age 11. uh, And I said, now you have to understand, first of all, uh, my background, um, uh, I come from a long, long line of fat. <laughs> <laughs> my, my parents were fat. Uh, all, all of my relatives were fat. Um, we lived in a fat house on a fat street. We drove a fat car. Uh, we had a dog, Jigs. Yeah, she was fat. Also. <laughs> so, you know, fat was was, uh, was was part of my, my heritage. So there I am, 11-year-old fat kid. And uh, Little League Baseball was just starting off. I thought, well, this would be fun to, to play instead of on sandlots, which we really used to do, to organize ball and, you know, get a uniform and so forth. So <clears throat> tried out and, and uh, sure enough, made the team and I uh, got the uniform. And then disaster struck, and the disaster was – Showing up was a new kid, uh, Bobby Snyder. God, I hated that kid, (laughs) who was a better catcher than I was. Because, you know, as a catcher, you know, if you're a fat kid, you don't have to move around a lot. You just have to, you know, stop the balls. But this kid came in, it was a better ball. So in those days, there were only a limited number of uniforms. So I was told, uh, Bobby gets your uniform. And I'll never forget that day of uh, putting my fat uniform into my my, uh, the basket on my bike and uh, and uh, driving or pedaling to to Bobby's house to deliver the uniform all the while wiping away tears because I was so hurt so humiliated and so forth. So, well, wow. with that came a decision. Uh, you know, do you just say, well, that, that's the way it goes, and and uh, you know, you're you're a little fat kid and somebody who's better than you, and and I and I said I decided no, I I want to be, become a better ball player. So I spent you know the rest of that that summer and then the winter and then the spring and then the next time, you know, learning how to, how to block balls in the dirt and, and how to throw and how to do the things that catchers were supposed to do. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the next year, uh, I made the team, got a uniform, a fat one again. Uh, but I also made the all-stars and I thought, gee, you know, th- there's something to this business of, of not quitting and of just uh, hanging in there and, and never giving up. And so, that's what I want to pass on to you. You know, your efforts, whatever they may be, are not always going to end in success, but what do you do then? And it's up to you as to what, what your choice is. And you can sit around and feel sorry for yourself or say, what did I learn and and what am I going to do in order to make this better? And, uh, you know, you just have to uh, accept that in life that you're not going to succeed. Uh, The second incident was uh, in Vietnam when, uh, a commanding a rifle company, and uh, we had uh, a main uh, force, uh, Viet Cong, a uh, Hamlet, uh, it turned out to be well-fortified, and I hit it with everything that I had, all the supporting arms that that I could bring to bear, fixed-wing aircraft and, and uh, helicopter gunships, mortars, artillery, and it just wasn't budging. And so as the sun was going down, because I, I didn't want to attack at night because that would give the enemy a further advantage, uh so i ordered uh, fixed bayonets and when i gave that order uh this amazing feeling came over the the company of gee you know this is this is not shooting somebody at 300 yards or or dropping a bomb or a mortar on them uh, we're going to go in and smash and slash and beat to death another human being at one end of this rifle or the other where somebody's going to die and instead of uh, any kind of a fear or panic it was this calm resolve and it was especially among those that, you know, came came from good families, good, solid uh, Marines in every respect. So we uh, conducted the assault. It was successful. We took the Hamlet. In the process of uh, setting in, I uh, learned that one of my squad leaders, uh, Corporal Frederick Miller from Berlin, Ohio, uh, had been killed. And so the company was exhausted at that point. So I told my exo, said it on the rest of the company. I'm going to go get— uh, Corporal Miller. And hmm. so went out with a couple of Marines, uh, put his body on, on my shoulders and, and and brought him back in. So the next morning, the battalion commander showed up and um, he noticed the blood on my flak jacket and asked, uh, did you get wounded? I didn't hear about this. And I said, no, no. And I told him what had happened. And he was very unhappy with me. And uh, as he's chewing me out, uh, there's a dumb thing to do. Don't ever do that again and so forth. And you know, you have those moments in life, Joe, where you've got to make a decision that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. And that, that was one. And so I said to myself, you know, this is a golden opportunity to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but, but I really can't. And uh, so I took a deep breath and I said, sir, I, I, I understand how you feel, but you've got to understand how I feel. If that happened again, I do the same thing because I'll never leave behind a dead or wounded Marine. Huh. The battalion commander goes ballistic. And he's in the process of relieving me of my command. And so I tried to explain to the students what relief of of, uh, of a command in combat meant, which meant the end. You know, you don't survive in the Marine Corps if you've been relieved in combat. Right. And so uh, as he's uh, in the process of relieving me, I'm thinking, God, this is, this is so unfair. All my boyhood dreams of Kankakee, Illinois, of the little fat kid going to Annapolis and becoming an officer of Marines. I mean, it's all... It's it's all ended. And uh, just then a helicopter arrived, and out of a junk, the assistant division commander of the 1st Marine Division, ironically the same job that I would hold in Desert Storm. (laughs) And as he's walking over to me and and he's asking, where's the CEO of my company, who is me? And people are pointing my direction and backing up, thinking there's going to be another big explosion taking place. (laughs) And and I remember thinking, God, this is getting a little uh, unfair. You know, I've... (laughs) I'm losing my command. I'm losing my, 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 my life in essence. Uh, uh, the battalion commander is uh, you know, grabbing uh, everything he can. And now I've got a uh, Brigadier general to come in and grab whatever's left of my fanny. <laughs> instead, the, uh, the general comes in and uh, grabs my hand and starts shaking and starts beating me on the back. and saying, God, that was great. Captain. That was fantastic. That was super. Turns to the battalion commander who had been relieving me and said, Colonel, with company commanders like this, how can you go wrong? <laughs> and with that, turned and hopped in his helicopter and flew away. And so, instead of getting relieved, I received my first Silver Star, and it was uh, it was that close. But wow. there's no there's no way that I was going to to uh, to undo what I had done or to to say uh, to the battalion commander, gee, I, I didn't mean it. I'll take it all back," and so forth. Uh, in his mind, this was a failure. But I just had to to see it through. And, and fortunately I did. So that was the, uh, the second example that I gave. So let, let me stop at that point and uh, see what you want to to, uh, to, to, further discuss your Joe. Wow.
1: That's incredible. Well, see, that is actually a good stopping point uh, momentarily for uh, for a sponsorship break. So we'll be right back and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll discuss this. Hold on. Hey veteran entrepreneurs, here's a new website for your toolkit that can save you money on travel. Plus, Support your military community at the same time. AmericanForcesTravel.com is a DoD partnership with Priceline. Active duty, reserve, veterans, and more can use this restricted website. You'll save money on flights, cars, and hotels. On top of that, travel company commissions go to your service branch to be reinvested into your military community. So check out AmericanForcesTravel.com and see for yourself. That's AmericanForcesTravel.com. All right, Sage. So before the break, you were talking about as company commander, you're li- the battalion commanders in the process of relieving you of command, when the assistant division commander lands in a helicopter nearby, comes over and pats you on the back, says, "Good job, well done," basically saving saving your skin. So, did the battalion commander ever? change his opinion about you later on or did he just kind of have to go with it because that's what the uh, assistant division commander had said
0: no it it was a a strange situation because uh, he was a man uh uh, very deep deep feelings and and thoughts uh but had a tough time expressing them and so later that day um he came by and he had a, a can of uh of heated up um, bone chicken, as I recall, one of the sea rations. And he said, uh, uh, "Here, Tom, I have some of this left over. Uh, why don't you take it?" And my initial reaction was to say, "Oh no, sir, that that's okay." And then I realized in in this way, my battalion commander is—he is, is, can't bring himself to say, "I'm sorry. I wish I had, you know, seen it otherwise." This is his way of saying it's okay. And so, with that, accepted it, and and uh, from that point on, uh, you know, the relationship was uh, was was better. And and you know, I, I didn't suffer from from a friendless report standpoint or anything of that nature. Uh, but um, it was just, uh, and I, I feel sorry for those individuals who have a tough time, I guess, expressing their feelings and and have to resort to to something like a, a can of a, a bone chicken to uh, to kind of say. Gee, this is uh, my way of uh, making amends yeah
1: you know this reminds me I forget which book it's from it might have been the book on command um, where the author states that more what's more important what's more important than command relationships are the relationships of the commanders meaning it's not how it's not the the command structure that's written down in the TO, the table of organization, it's actually the individuals that are plugged into those leadership positions and how they get along with each other that's more important.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the case. And and of course, in any unit, uh, there's a culture that exists and the culture is, is not written down anywhere. That's kind of the beauty of it, but also the... Uh, the mystery of it, uh, it's how we do things. It's what's okay and what's not okay. And the person who establishes that culture is the leader. And that leader, uh, by establishing that culture, uh, establishes things like, uh, it's okay to tell me uh, what your thoughts and feelings are. I mean, not when I give an order and and there's no time to take a, a vote or anything like that, but as we're discussing things or options and so forth, to know that, that uh, I treasure, I value your input because you're, you're part of the, this team. I don't know everything just because I outrank you, but uh, I always thought it was interesting that um, Lord Nelson, when he would have a battle plan and laid it all out and then would have his various captains come in uh, to review it, uh, they would one by one give their opinion of it, but he always started off with the most junior captain and then worked his way on up. Because Nelson realized that if you start off with the most senior guy and they all think it's a great idea, then there's a ten- going to be a tendency for the junior guys to fall in the line, even if they don't think that. <laughs>
1: Very because true. Because if they don't,
0: if they don't fall in line, then that senior guy may sit on their, their promotion board someday or whatever the case, but even, <laughs> but if you start off at the bottom, you know, then it's a little easier to say, gee, I, I see it a little different way and so forth. And therefore you get the input that, that you really need as, as a commander and uh, but that's, again, a culture that, that the senior person establishes.
1: Can you recall a time where you, you were plopped into an organization and it, it had an extremely toxic culture wherein you were able to change that?
0: Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure toxic would be the case. Uh, it was a, a case of a, uh, a commander who had um, gotten so close uh, to uh, – his officers, that that the relationship was uh, was not uh, was not healthy, hmm. and so and I was the XO at the time, a brand new XO, and so I'm the guy. And in fact, I go back to Leavenworth, and one of the many things I learned there, uh, one was a a paper on the leadership at senior levels of command, and for the army, this is brigade and higher, but it made the point that for relationships to work, uh, it helps to have one individual who is mission-oriented and the other individual who is troop-oriented. And so the idea is that there's not an overbalance of being so mission-oriented that you forget about the troops or so troop-oriented that you forget about the mission. So Mm -hmm. it was uh, necessary for the EXO. I mean, the the EXO doesn't... uh, get a, a choice in this matter. He, he has to accept the, the role that is necessary to make the outfit work. So I became the mission oriented guy, which was uh, kind of different from the normal role that I would have liked, but it was necessary in order to keep the command going, uh, because of this almost toxic, uh, unhealthy relationship of, of, uh, you know, all of the, all of the officers were like sons to the battalion commander. And, and, uh, you know, you just can't have a situation like that. There are times when there's tasks to be done, and there's unpleasantness that uh, that are associated with that. And the exo, in this case, was me was was the bad guy in a role that I I just had to accept. But uh, it is it's a matter of what's good for the unit. Uh, it's not what makes you feel comfortable or what makes you feel good. Uh, how do you make the unit uh, operate? Uh, because uh, our our mission, I don't have to tell you or anybody uh, who's listening to this. The mission, of the military, is deadly serious, and uh, we have to be focused. We have to know what the hell we're doing, and that uh, oftentimes requires, um, you know, saying no or being the bad guy or, or, uh, or uh, critiquing or, or correcting. Never in public, always in private, but nevertheless, not letting things slide by, and that, that can be uh, wearing, uh,
1: for sure. Yeah. All right, Sage. So, so, what's number three?
0: Number three was a deeply personal one uh, as uh, as a
1: Roman Catholic,
0: and that was uh, a battalion XO, and uh, one of my, or my driver came to me one day and said, uh, sir, I'd uh, I like to have the day off tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, to have the day off. And I said, why, What? Uh, what is it do you have going? And, and he replied truthfully, well, my, my girlfriend is pregnant, and uh, I'm going to have to drive her to, uh, to get an abortion. Hmm. And that should have been the easiest decision for me to make. Uh, I mean, I'm a practicing Catholic, uh, born and raised one, 12 years of Catholic education. I mean, and I, I, to this day, I don't know what went through my mind, uh, that if I said no, that he'd go U.A. and then he'd get into trouble, and was it uh, some misplaced uh, sense of, uh, of uh, duty to him? That, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and to my everlasting uh, uh, regret, uh, I said yes. And then you know I started thinking of, and as I told the students, you know some some failures have no happy endings. You know this this one doesn't. Uh, that that child that I was complicit in uh, in the death of uh, would be in his or her 40s these days had had uh, he or she been allowed to be born. And so sometimes you just have to, to learn the hard way of uh, decisions, and and you can't get too cocky or too confident of, John I'm a good Catholic." I go to mass every Sunday and all the other things. Yeah. But how about one that really, really counts. And you've got to make one of those moral decisions that, uh, when you had to make that one, uh, you failed and failed miserably.
1: Wow. And, and this was your driver. So you probably ha- had a fairly personal relationship you, you, oh, yeah, you yeah, knew good, each other on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. And, you know, good Marine. And, and, uh, but just, uh, and again, uh, I've gone over that decision a million times, Joe and, uh, I keep trying to figure out why did I make the the wrong one, but I did.
1: Did you ever bring it up again with your driver?
0: No, no, ne- never again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those were the three main things that you spoke to your to the high school that you graduated at. Uh, how many years later?
0: Oh, let's see. Uh, that was a uh, class of '58. So what, almost sixty years after, huh? Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm 77, so uh, th- that'd be right. Uh, yeah, yeah next, year, next year we'll have our 60th uh, reunion. So, <laughs> And um, it was funny, if we get in the question and answer period. Uh, one of the things that part of the introduction was I was the co-captain of the first undefeated football team from my high school. Awesome. And, and so the first question came from a football player <laughs> who asked, uh, uh, how much did you weigh? <laughs> when you how
1: much could you bench?
0: Yeah. And, and I said, well, you know, it's interesting. I weighed 20 pounds less than I weigh right now. Uh, and now I had just hmm. uh, come off of a pretty serious diet, but I went off to the Naval Academy at about 165 pounds playing a pulling guard and uh, ended up in, in a linebacker because in those days you played offense and defense. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of discouraging when, when the scat backs uh, weighed more than I did. <laughs> and, and I'm the guy who has to go out and take out these huge guns uh, with, with the running play. But anyway, I played until a, a shoulder got ripped out, and that ended my my football playing days. But then the other questions were, were, were good, like, um, what do I think I would have done had uh, uh, the general not showed up in my
1: days in the Marine Corps would have ended? Yeah, that's a good question.
0: And I, and I said, gee, you know, well, part of it was, you know, the shame of coming back to, to Kankakee, to my hometown, and saying, gee, I, I failed, but you know, what do I do then? And I said, uh, you know, probably, uh, have become a teacher, uh, because that has always uh, appealed to me. And I think there's, uh, every officer, I think, uh, the good officers that I know are, are teachers at heart and, uh, you know, the relationship with what their juniors as general Lejeune said is, uh, you know, teacher to scholar and in many ways like father to son. Mm-hmm. And so, but, uh, and then other questions of other challenges that, that I've, I've had, uh, and how I face him and, and uh, again, uh, Doctor dodged none of them because uh, good, good questions, and uh, this is their chance to take advantage of a, of an old grade beer uh, who uh, would come back to, uh, to share a few thoughts with them.
1: And did you did you keep them captivated, or, or did you have heads nodding, and uh, did they seem disinterested?
0: The the principal said uh, that uh, you could have heard a pen drop. Uh. at various points. Now that could have been because they were, uh, sound asleep. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: Probably not. Oh,
0: no, but, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, especially the, the Vietnam stuff, uh, they don't hear that very often and, and I don't mention it very often, but it was, uh, I thought a, a good example of what happens, um, you know, sometimes when you're literally under fire and the decisions that you make, and they're not always the, the ones that some people see as, uh, as the, the correct ones that some
1: people see as failures. Fascinating. Well, General, if you had to sum up what it was like to go back to your hometown high school that you graduated from after a lifetime, after several careers, actually, what comes to mind and what was that overall, what was the experience like?
0: Well, oh, it was a tremendous uh, feeling of... Uh... Of welcoming, I mean, to, to go back where I grew up, uh, my sister still lives there. I have a, a niece and nephews that are still in the area, uh, friends, uh, some uh, classmates showed up at the the award uh, event that evening. So that was uh, fun, <clears throat> except I couldn't uh, tell anything but the truth since they were fellow co-conspirators for a lot of the, <laughs> the things that we're involved in. But I think the statute of limitations has run out on, on most of them. But, but, but it was great to come back, but uh, along with it uh, came this, this tremendous feeling of a blessing of a, the opportunity that I had as a, as a young man. My dad was a German immigrant, a plumber and fitter with only an eighth grade education. Uh, my mother was the daughter of Irish immigrants, uh, and to have this opportunity to, uh, to you know, go to the Naval Academy and then become an officer of Marines and to serve my country for over 30 years and to lead Marines in combat you know, to have a family that uh, is wonderful as mine. Uh, God, I, uh, as I said, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world, and and I still really feel that way. Outstanding. All
1: right, Sage, episode two's a wrap, so join us next Wednesday for episode three with Brigadier General Jurati, also known as Sage. All right, we're out.